Hey everybody, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today we are going to coax this podcast out of the shed one pile of Reese's Pieces at a time. That's right, today folks we are talking about E.T. the Extraterrestrial. My name is Matt, I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers, and we try to make our case. Last week, Adam sent us both home to go watch E.T., so in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask him to defend his pick. Why does E.T. matter for the work of the church? In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we are going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with E.T. for the lectionary week ahead, which will be Year C, March 27th, Resurrection Sunday, the first Sunday of the Easter season. Finally, we will offer up some postludes, just small preacher thoughts that each of us has on something else that we're watching or following in culture. All right, Adam, so let's do it. Here's my confession. Before last night, I had seen E.T. once in my life, and I was in preschool. Must not have been long after E.T. came out in theaters, and I guess somebody had it on home video. I, you'll forgive me, my, I was four, my memory's a little foggy. So they brought it into our preschool, and we watched it together, which, even just to say that, sounds kind of ridiculous. I mean, now I am the parent of a preschooler, and I can't imagine them watching anything so intense. Anyway. For a while as we were watching it, it went okay. You know, we meet E.T., this alien who gets left behind on Earth after his spaceship and his friends are chased off by some scientists in the California suburbs. And then we meet Elliot, the fabulously charismatic 10-year-old who befriends E.T. and takes him or her or it home. And then pretty soon it gets complicated. E.T. and Elliot develop some kind of psychic link. So, for example, E.T.'s at home drinking beer and Elliot's in school feeling drunk. And as a preschooler, that was a little weird. And then these scientists show up, like for real, with their crazy astronaut suits and these terrifying hermetically sealed tubes and tents that sprawl all over the subdivision. And I was freaked out. <laughs> I got to tell you, it actually took yeah. me a long time to want to watch movies again after that, period. I mean, not just from E.T., there's a Darth Vader nightmare in there too, but I was, I was a sensitive kid, and I guess what I'm saying is I've, I've got some scars from this one, and I only went back as a 36-year-old adult man who apparently can comport himself because you made me do it. So, Adam, I hope that making me relive my childhood trauma was worth it for you. <laughs> so why do we do this? What does E.T. have to say to us now in 2016? Why does this movie matter for the work of the church? Well, first, let me apologize for um, triggering any residual memories that you hadn't, uh, hadn't actually dealt with. I think, I think I'm okay, uh, I think, but I appreciate you checking in, but I think I'm okay. Well, I'm willing to pay a, a small portion of your therapist bill going forward. Uh, so when I enter into this discussion of ET, I have to, I have to enter uh, cautiously because in some, some ways I feel a little too close to this movie. Uh, it nearly erases all of my critical faculties and just opens the floodgates of all the emotions that I have in my body. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of California as a child of divorce, and Spielberg gets every single detail right about this family. 
I named my child Elliot in no small part because I think the character of Elliot in E.T. is among the more important film characters of the 20th century. So forgive me if my thoughts never rise above my own attempt to explain this complex mess of emotions inside of me. And yet that's sort of the point of E.T. This movie doesn't give one second of thought to the intellectual credibility of the plot. At one point, a scientist asks Michael, the older brother of Elliot, you mean Elliot thinks his thoughts, thinks E.T.'s thoughts? And Michael replies, no, no, Elliot feels his feelings. This isn't really a science fiction movie. It begins in a spaceship, yeah, but, but really this is a movie about what it means to be a family and how families are always sharing feelings, good or bad. And the scene at the end when the family all arrives to see E.T. leave is so damn moving because they seem to have found some measure of healing, some, some route back to their own home, some common experience of healing or grace or love, of sacrifice, of generosity. E.T. is trying to get back to his home while these people are trying to repair their own home. And the truth is the bonds of belief are not actually that strong. What we believe doesn't hold us together very well. And this is why we see so many people patrol belief so vigilantly, because we know that common belief doesn't actually bind us together. But common experience, common emotional moments, that's the stuff of glue in families. And I think it's the stuff of glue in our churches as well. We're bonded over the fact that we have not just intellectually apprehended the bodily resurrection of Christ, but because maybe we've actually felt that risen Christ in our midst. Maybe we've tasted and seen. Our intentions to stay united as the body of Christ depend on shared experience not just common belief. And as I think about this, and as I reflect on E.T., I feel the need to want to talk about resurrection. And, you know, I'm, I'm stepping on, on, on Lent's toes, on Holy Week's toes right now, just because I want to preach about this. I want to get Jesus out of the grave, not so that people might actually intellectually apprehend such a thing, or historically verify such an experience, but that they might experience what the risen Christ in their midst is like. So as I came back to E.T. again this week, I was taken by the role of E.T. as being the, the crucible of healing for a family. And that seems positively Easter to me. So, I mean, some 30 years later, 32 years later, you're coming back and watching E.T. What, what resonated with you as you saw it? Well, I've just been sitting here trying to unpack your take, and I, I think there's so much there. I think this, uh, it's really interesting to me that we both, for both of us, this movie is a really formative experience of childhood. I mean, it really, right. it, you know, but in really different ways. And it's, well, and not just for us, right? Like, this is right. a formative experience for so many people who grew up in the 80s. Absolutely. Uh, and I, 
I don't think there's a coincidence about that. I think Spielberg is both trying to evoke and in some ways kind of produce a sense of childhood. And maybe we will circle back to that. I, it, it, it strikes me that part of what's going on is that this is kind of Spielberg at peak Spielberg. I mean, this felt to me right. like, going back last night, it felt like the most Spielbergian Spielberg that I'd ever Spielberg. <laughs> right. And it's not his most important film, right? Like you can say Schindler's List is his most important film, but this is his most Spielbergian film. Right. I mean, it's got it both in just the texture of the images in this, the, the resonance of childhood that comes through so many of his films, that sense of uh, exploration and suspense and fantasy that pulls in from Close Encounters. Uh, there's, it seems like it's, it's pulling on so many of his threads at the same time uh, right. and in some really powerful ways. And it, you know, it seems like in some ways the, the Spielberg power that worked so well for you, it kind of freaked me out. Not right. yet, last night, <laughs> right. but you know, when I was... And, and it, because it was that, the emotional level of, of having the mom open the door and astronaut spacesuit guy comes in and just kind of barges into their space without any sense of exposition or without any sense of um, reason. We only have the most intuitive understanding of what's going on. And I think that's part of what was hard for me to, mm-hmm. to wrestle with. And I don't mean it as a critique. I think it's because it's so powerful at what it does that it had that experience. And I, so I was thinking about your, your take on, on the kind of power of emotional experience that you see in the ways that bind our churches together. And I was, I was thinking about that and just the kind of different experiences of church going and different experiences of liturgy. I mean, you can, you know, folks come to our small church on a Sunday morning and most people who walk in the door know almost everybody else who's there. If you don't right. know someone who's there, that's because they're visiting or they're somebody's family member. And there's a lot of shared stories. And it's no, there's no question in my mind that what brings people into that place on Sunday morning is that sense of being part of a shared history of emotional experiences that they've, they've been with each other through all this stuff. But, right. And, and the idea that you would analogize a small congregation to a family in that case makes total sense. Right. Right. Because they do have so many shared experiences. You know, at a church that I worked in in New Jersey, they half the congregation had been there for 35 years together. Sure. Uh, and, you know, and, and arguably the most important ministry that happens in those contexts is the, the 15 minutes before and after church when folks are sharing lives with each other and checking right. in. Uh, and, but on the other hand, I was thinking about if I, on Sunday morning, decided to, to vacate my job and go to some... Uh, some church of a really staggeringly different denominational background. So I, I decided to go over to one of the big um, kind of more contemporary produced services outside of Lynchburg, not even to like a Falwell church, but just one of these big contemporary ones where there, the, the liturgical experience of worship would be really different. And I wouldn't know anybody who was there. There'd be a thousand people there and I wouldn't know anybody. And it would be... Um, the emotional experience would be strikingly different because I wouldn't have the shared stories with them. And then I'm thinking about the place in worship that would actually ground me, if anything, would be if we did something as simple as say the Lord's Prayer together or right. say the Apostles' Creed together, where in some ways it's that, that statement of faith and creed actually would give me the only way that I would have into that worship service. 
Um, so I've, I've just kind of been bouncing around your right. sense and of I what mean, church I, is I in I suspect context. maybe you could do that with another denomination. So, you know, I spent um, a good portion of uh, my early adult years uh, hanging around Pentecostal traditions, you know. And the, the center of that Pentecostal emotional experience is the experience of the, of the charism, you know, that, that, that something has shown up and made itself present in the midst. And what is so striking to me about so much of the best Pentecostal worship is that, this, that the service has to tarry and wait on those charisms. Like you, can't, um, you can't go on. You can't be slavish to your bulletin because in some ways you have to wait on the presence of the Spirit in the midst of the people. And that common experience of just watching someone have an ecstatic moment um, is combined with the fact that you don't just watch it. You have to suspend the rest of what you were anticipating doing. And that pulls you into the present in, I think, a really valuable way that a lot of mainline Protestant churches can learn from, which is uh, when, when God shows up in your midst and you are noticing it and feeling it and people are watching something happen, that you wait on it and you stay there because you recognize that that sort of emotional moment, whether you explain what just happened or not, is really valuable for the sustenance of the community. So in what sense is then E.T. a film about kind of emotional intervention into a, a kind of, I don't know, a more Presbyterian world? I mean, I come at this from a pretty rationalistic denomination, so, and, and we have to constantly remind ourselves that that's not where all of this starts and stops. So in what sense can... The, the film here be a kind of intervention for us? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I think in part, um, it's recognizing that emotions and intellect are not opposites, ultimately. Uh, but they are different modes of engaging the world. And that's something, when you talk to scientists, the most scientific among us, they'll talk about how like, a beautiful theorem gets them excited, right? It, 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 it stokes emotion within them. Uh, and and I, so I don't want to sort of pit emotionality or the sort of the role of emotions within our worship or liturgical settings as primary. What I want to do is see this sort of important back and forth that comes. What I think is so valuable about E.T. as an example of this is that it does what our worship services rarely do, which is takes a singular position and plays out the whole story via that vantage point. I think that there's a, there's a movie in here of the scientists trying to figure out what's going on with E.T. and where Keys become the guy who has the keys. Um, he becomes a sympathetic figure who's trying to do good for the world. Yeah. I think there's a movie there too, but what Spielberg does is he takes a point of view. And I, and I think this is really valuable for preaching, especially, which is um, I, I hear a lot of preaching that sort of has to vacillate in order to gather as many viewpoints as possible. Sure. 
rather than sticking with the viewpoint and recognizing all of its internal resonances um, for the duration of the sermon. And I think Spielberg is teaching us something, especially when he takes the vantage point of someone who is um, largely ignored. I got to say, though, I mean, just as my experience of watching the film last night, it was its keys. It's the, the adult scientist uh, who is the, in some ways, the first real grown up in the film, aside from the mother. And it, yeah, but she's a child, right? She's, yeah. Uh, that was, in some ways, it was one of his scenes that hit me the hardest. And it's this bit where he confesses to Elliot that he's been dreaming about this moment since he was 10 years old. Right. And right. that, to me, I mean, yeah, this film invites you into this very singular perspective of the very singular childlike perspective. But uh, when he says, you know, I've been dreaming of this moment, um, for me, as a 36-year-old adult male, it shattered all of that child, childlike vocalization, and I was him. Mm-hmm. And, 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 it was, and, and all of a sudden, I was seeing my, kind of, my own tragic role in the film, that I had gone from that kind of wonder of childhood and, and was trying to now impose on the film all the scientific stuff. That, yeah, he, you know, I, I, th- I think he seems like the most sympathetic of those scientists. He's the one who can marvel at it. But, but still, I, um, that was the moment that, that hit me the hardest in the whole thing. Right. And you, you have to wait an, a full hour and a half to get there. I mean, it's, it's three quarters of the way through the movie before you ever see his face or hear his voice. Um, so as someone who is looking for a, uh, a proxy by which to understand how they fit into this movie, the adult has to wait. It has to wait a really long time, in fact. Um, but when it does come, Spielberg does give you someone who's not a, a villain, but is someone who is trying to find that inner child within himself. Uh, that said, it's soon after that that Elliot, the E.T. dies, right? And they give Elliot a moment with E.T. And he's talking to E.T. And he says, I can't feel anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And then he says, E.T., I love you. Mm-hmm. And then E.T. comes back to life, Right. And then for the next 30 minutes, it is nothing but like straight up ecstatic emotion the entire time. It's fear, it's chase, it's like they start flying, it's homecoming, it's everything. Like there, there is a moment where Elliot, I mean, like a good scriptwriter, Melissa Matheson, who should be noted, uh, you know, brings us to that place of like of the rain in the third act or the fourth act. But then from there on, like it is just on ecstasy and in some ways you get a hint that keys recognizes that value too even as he can't actually get there he shows up at the end right i mean he's there at the the boarding of the um at at the the reboarding of the spaceship that he and drew barrymore and mom have all managed to get there without bikes uh and and it does feel like you know, I, I appreciated that the film did not overplay their hand, its hand with that character. I appreciated that the, the moment he got, because I think if they overplay their hand, then he becomes the father figure in a lot of right. 
potentially bad grad school papers about this movie. Whereas I actually think if anyone becomes the father figure in this film, it's the older brother who, mm-hmm. um, in a film... Learns to drive, right? Right, who, who in a film that's largely about both childhood and the kind of good ways of growing up and bad ways of growing up, that the older brother seems to learn quite a bit about what actual maturity looks like uh, in mm-hmm. a really fabulous way. And I think, if anything, is, is, is the, the father who can still have empathetic imagination with the children and understand and rally and defend and dream and do all of those beautiful things while also assuming some of the basic mantles of responsibility. Like, here, I'm going to get my friends. We have bikes. Let's do it. See? I mean, all the feels, man. Like, all the emotions. <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm so glad that we could have this little bit of therapy and let you kind of work some of that out. <laughs> um, I've been working it out for the last, you know, 36 years of my life. But we, we still have other work to do. So let's move on to preaching. Uh, our, we've done a little bit of this, but our, our next segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So now let's look officially at the lectionary passages for March 27th, Easter Sunday. We've got the big Luke text staring in front of us and a couple of other good ones as well. So what I want to know from you, Adam, preacher to preacher, Sunday's coming. Where does E.T. show up in your sermon? So I think one of the true marvels of Spielberg's direction in this movie is that the camera is always privileging the point of view of the child or the alien. Uh, If you know anything about film, uh, a very important film um, angle is the point of view of one of the characters. It gives you an opportunity to see what the character is seeing. If you go back and watch E.T., you'll notice that nearly every shot, every point of view shot comes from the point of view of either a child or E.T. We always see this world through their eyes, through their angles. Uh, the, The camera is placed really low. Um, moreover, we, we only see the mother's face early. And like I said earlier, she's a, she's a child in some sense in this movie. And we don't see another face until Peter Coyote as Keys shows up in the scientist tent uh, an hour and 20 minutes into the movie. This movie is intentionally providing you the perspective of a child. And over and over again, um, from that perspective, we see people not believe Elliot or discard his ideas and his perspective. His family doesn't believe him that, uh, that he's found E.T. Uh, the scientists don't believe him that they're killing E.T. until E.T. dies. Elliot is consistently told that he knows nothing by his brothers or um, by other people in this film. As I think about what this means for the Easter text, the Lucan passage where the women's testimonies are cast off as the text says idle tales. The, the Greek word there is leros. Um, idle tale is a really bad translation of leros. Leros is a sort of dirty word. It's BS. It's horse hockey. It's, it's when you tell the truth, especially if you are a person who is marginalized like women in the ancient Near East or like children in our own culture it's possible and probable that people will think that you're full of leros i'm struck by the fact that even those who knew jesus best in the lucan passage the disciples still found the proclamation of the women junk 
That is, until a few of them run to the tomb and notice um, that it's empty. In many ways, this is the nature of the Easter proclamation. You don't get to control how it's received. Um, you don't get to prove that this ever happened. You don't get to convince people of a bodily resurrection. You don't get to live by sight. You get to live by faith. Uh, but it's a faith formed from experience. And I love that Eliot and these women in the text both serve a place where they, um, though their uh, though their proclamation is cast off as leros, when people finally go and see it for themselves, they're proven correct. And I feel like such is the Easter proclamation. Uh, our job is not to prove this stuff. Our job is to invite people to come and experience it for themselves. And so um, I, I love this idea that, that the initial, the, mo the first Easter sermon, the first Resurrection Sunday moment of proclamation is not believed uh, until the disciples get out into the real world and see like, oh, maybe they were right. Well, that's what I'm thinking of as, as I think about this Lucan passage. How about you, Matt? Um, I want to take a little bit of a different perspective. I actually want to do the, the somewhat odd thing of pulling out a non-gospel text for Easter Sunday, which I'm pretty sure that none of the preachers listening to our podcast would ever deign to, to, to preach from Isaiah for Easter. But I want right. to alert you yeah. to the beautiful passage from Isaiah 65 that is in the Easter Sunday lectionary. For my money, this is one of the more gorgeous passages in Scripture, and this is the—it includes the line that they shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat, for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Mm, that's beautiful. So let, me, so let me talk about E.T. as an environmental ethic for a minute. Uh, I, I want to pull out this line, the days of a tree shall like the days of my people be. And there's a pretty obvious E.T. tie-in, and it's the potted plant. Right. We have this potted plant that E.T. has some kind of unexplained connection with. He's healed the plant once, and now the plant for the rest of the movie kind of symbolizes E.T.'s health. But I think we can dig into that a little bit, because in Scripture, the idea in this verse, the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, it's, it's, there's this connection between the well-being of God's people and the well-being of their immediate environmental context, and that those things are inextricably connected, which means I think that one of the things we see in this verse is a kind of theology of, of harmony. And I, I want to suggest that right. E.T. as an environmental ethic is very much about harmony, and it shows up in what I think is the most remarkable sequence of filmmaking in the movie, which is the opening sequence, where you, know, you have the opening credits, and then it fades in on this spaceship in the California for forest, and it's a totally bizarre sight. And it's such an odd sight, but Spielberg's camera is not at all scared by it. It just kind of gradually surveys the ship and it lingers behind trees. And eventually the aliens come out, but they seem very much at home. They're, they're collecting samples from the forest and it's very... Right, they're on like a fact-finding mission. Right, they're on a field sort, trip, right. right? And then eventually the camera roams inside the ship and we see this like botanical garden that they have going on in there. There are species from all over the galaxy. 
And then the camera cuts to these pickup trucks that have jumped into the frame. They've come up from the city. And the remarkable thing is that Spielberg films them as the invaders. So you have actual aliens invading our forest, but the invaders are the humans who are the ones who have come to capture and dissect them or give them lobotomies or whatever the the kids. The alien isn't the ominous one. It's the adults. right? Right. And the aliens are actually kind of the naturalists. And it's the humans who are posited as crusaders, even in a space that's next to their home. Uh, And I think that is where E.T. gives us this really beautiful theology of harmony, that these aliens don't have to be in their so-called own space, but they can respect the environment in a harmonious way that the humans who live in it cannot. I think it's so interesting, too, because uh, so much of this, this movie is told on that boundary of that suburban edge. Right. And this larger forest, right? Right. So, and and the the children are always crossing into in and out of this boundary pretty fluidly. Yeah. And but the adults never are. They sort of charge through it. Right. Right. I mean that that shot of the pickup trucks coming up over the lip at the very beginning is it's the whole. And to me, it's the whole thing. Uh, and I, I right. I think if you wanted to do, and I'm probably not courageous enough to pull this off myself but maybe someone else is. If you, I think you could pull off Isaiah 65 as your Easter resurrection text. And I think you could do it through this lens of an environmental ethic where you have a scripture and here a film that I think respects, respects a harmony and within a harmony, the natural consequence of death so that new life can happen again. I mean, this is an Easter sermon that loves the springtime Easter, right? And, and maybe right. if there's... Maybe if you love this text as much as I do, maybe it finds a way into your Easter, uh, regardless of what those women at the tomb have to say. So Right. I think there's something also like the 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 extraterrestrials are supposed to in some ways make sense to the children but not to the adults. That that the that E. T. finds Elliot as a companion instead of Keys is an an important point of the movie. Sure. And I think that there's something in there to talk about like the bad guy in this movie, if there is one, is the adult. But it's not just the adult. It's that adult temptation to choose control right. over harmony, control over friendship, um, right, it's, well, it's, control over mutuality. It's the science teacher who wants them to kill the frogs, right? I mean, there's that, the, the, that, yeah. that seems vivisection, to... not, not dead frogs. He wants them to see their hearts beating in their chests still. Right. No, yeah, absolutely. And that, to me, you have a, a theology of harmony and resurrection at stake when all those frogs are set free back into their natural environment, right. back to, to, to their liberation, as it were. So I, that's, anyway, I don't know if that's a hole we, we can fall into. but uh, No, I think that's... it's lovely, though, because it is so important to this, to this movie, especially since, like, the uh, visions of construction are all over the movie as well. Right. Yeah. Um, to to think like how 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 are we subduing this earth and in some ways what 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 does that make us when we do that? Um, instead of preserving it. Yeah. I think the, that there's a lot there. Yeah. The the it was not lost on me that the bike chase at the end goes through this kind of half built suburb. Right. I mean, it, it looked like right. something out of the the pre housing crash America. All right, Adam. E.T. is a classic. I am even willing to admit that. 
if you have the same <laughs> deep childhood scars about it that I do, then you should go give it another try. I'm glad I did. You can go rent it on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, all the usual suspects. But now it's time for our last segment. This one's called Postludes. It's just a brief chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Adam, what's your postlude for this week? So as someone who has preached Easter weeks, um, I recognize that there is a temptation among those who are preaching this week to try and find the, the story, the illustration that is going to capture everyone's imagination, that is going to bring back all of those peoples who you haven't seen since Christmas Eve, and the, the temptation to try and wrap up Easter in all of its sort of multivalent uh, uh, character in an illustration. And as I was thinking about just how do you choose a good illustration for, uh, for Easter, I was reminded of this little book by uh, the Italian writer Italo Calvino. Uh, it's called Invisible Cities, and it's a book about how uh, Marco Polo, who finds himself in the court of Kublai Khan, and he spends the entire book explaining to Kublai Khan the contours and textures and personalities of all of these cities that exist within Kublai Khan's uh, realm and kingdom, but which Kublai Khan has never visited. And so the book takes place uh, um, over a chessboard where Marco Polo then recounts uh, the, 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 the shape of these cities. It's a lovely little book. Um, it's full of all sorts of weird... Um, magical realism that you might find in, in a writer like Calvino. Um, but I was reminded of the very end of the book, where Polo has described these many cities of his travels to Kublai Khan. And from the very beginning, the Khan has represented this inability to notice that the human story is pervasive in all of these things. And so he only has this chessboard in front of him, and he's reduced his empire to this small black and white chess piece, uh, pieces on his chessboard. Um, the chess pieces are this gross reduction of the magnificent cities that Polo has actually visited. And then at the very end, Polo leans towards Khan, and he asks the, uh, the great ruler to look closer at the chessboard. And this is what Calvino writes. Then Marco Polo spoke. Your chessboard, sire, is inlaid with two woods, ebony and maple. The square on which your enlightened gaze is fixed was cut from the ring of a trunk that grew in a year of drought. You see how its fiber is arranged? Here a barely hinted knot can be made out of it. A bud tried to burgeon on a premature spring day, but the night's frost forced it to desist. Until then, the great Khan had not realized that the foreigner knew how to express himself fluently in his language. But it was not this fluency that amazed him. Here is a thicker pore. Perhaps it was a larvum's nest, not a woodworm, because once born it would have begun to dig, but a caterpillar that gnawed the leaves and was the cause of the trees being chopped down. This edge was scored by the woodcarver with his gouge so that it would adhere to the next square. The quantity of things that could be read in a little piece of smooth and empty wood overwhelmed Kubla. Polo was already talking about ebony forests, 
about rafts laden with logs that come down river, of docks, of women at the windows. I love this piece because Calvino is, I think, saying to all of us that the story that you're looking for is right in front of you. Mm. If you have the eyes to see it, if you can tell its story, you can see it there. Um, and it's a good reminder to me as I preach that there is no perfect illustration. There is the stories that are in front of us, and I think those are enough. If you do have a perfect illustration for Easter Sunday, please feel free to call Amherst Presbyterian Church at 4th. <laughs> no, That's it, right? Right. Yeah, I will. I've got a couple. Yeah, no, you send them my way. I'll, 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 I'll credit you somehow, maybe. <laughs> All right, Matt, what about you? All right, so I want to talk about joy and wonder. Easter Sunday begs on us to approach this story with a sense of joy and with some sense of wonder. And to that end, I think it would be helpful for us to talk about the Muppets. Perfect. Okay. So I'm a longtime fan of the Muppets, so I bring way too much investment to this. I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. There is a new incarnation of the Muppets on television that has just wrapped up its first season. This is widely believed to be a mostly failed incarnation of the Muppets. Uh, They tried a kind of 30 Rock with Muppets thing where the Muppets were producing a a late night talk show, uh, which is a good idea, but then they were presented as being kind of jaded and sarcastic and very modern and uh, trying to figure out what it is that distinguishes kind of good incarnations of the Muppets versus bad incarnations of the Muppets. And I think it has a lot to do with joy and wonder. I think in that sense of wonder, there is a very specific Muppet form of dramatic irony, which is that the Muppets don't know that the world sucks. Right. And, and I, I want to think back to... Uh, a scene from the original Muppet movie where um, Kermit and Piggy are on a fancy date together and they're at some fancy restaurant out in the middle of nowhere and Steve Martin shows up as their mean, insolent waiter. Actually, on IMDb, he is credited as insolent waiter. And they are very much in love and very much infatuated and they're trying to have this lovely dinner. And what they don't realize is that Steve Martin is being a jerk. They have ordered a bottle of wine, and um, Kermit beckons Steve Martin over to open the wine for them, and he cannot be any more condescending than he is. He points out that it is, uh, you know, the, one of the finest wines of Idaho. It is uh, a, something that Kermit spent 95 cents on, he tells us. Steve Martin is requested by Kermit to uh, sniff the cork and um, taste the wine and, and does a spit take halfway across the room and Kermit and Piggy are totally unfazed. They do not realize that the wine is bad. They do not realize that they are being condescended to. In so doing, I think they invite the audience into this experience of wonder and joy. Not that the audience is in any way compelled to forget that the world is also bad, but the audience is invited to believe in the possibility of someone of a moment where you are not brought down by its baggage. I think in some way that's the function of a really, that's one of the functions of a really good children's sermon in a space of worship, the ones that also preach to adults because it allows adults to experience the story through the eyes of someone who are, of, of, of children who are not 
sitting there worried about their marriages and their mortgages and their jobs and all of that. It's not necessarily to force people to experience joy and wonder, which I don't think is really possible. We're like the Muppet audience, we're pretty jaded, but I think we can be invited into moments where we are glad for its possibility. And I, I really hope that's something the church can do, and especially on Easter morning, where we are invited to come to the tomb with childlike wonder and with joy over this amazing thing. So my suggestion is that those of you preaching Easter Sunday preach to your congregation as if they were Muppets. I, imagine, I invite you to picture them in the pews as Muppets, and this is going to be an amazing thing, and maybe some joy will burst out of it. That's what I've got, Adam. I, I'm not preaching this year, um, but I would love to be seen as a Muppet. I, I always see you as a Muppet, Adam. <laughs> I appreciate that. A big, tall, skinny Muppet. Basically. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of Technicolor Jesus, but we're not quite done yet. I got to pick this week. I picked the masterpiece E.T., and now it's Matt's turn. So, Matt. What are we going to watch next? Where are we going? So I tried to push us away from fantasy a little bit since we've just watched E.T. and Ghostbusters. And I tried to push us away from childhood a little bit since we just had this long conversation about Elliot's 10-year-old perspective. But I failed on both counts. And the reason I failed is because, frankly, the Easter season has so much of this supernatural imagery in it, particularly in the post-resurrection appearances, and in the very particular text for, next, for our next recording, which is two weeks from now, Easter 3, John 21, the story of Jesus and the disciples at the lake shore. When you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. And so I'm kind of doubling down on fantasy and childhood from a much different perspective. Let's go watch Hiya Miyazaki's masterwork, 2001's Spirited Away. All right. Nice. Yeah, yeah, so the pitch is we've got a, another 10-year-old child, right? But a much different 10-year-old child in a much different cultural context with, I think, a much different kind of take on what it is to be surrounded by a new supernatural reality. So that's the homework. Spirited away. Watch it with subtitles. Enjoy it. I love it. Spirited away. Yeah, fantastic. Beautiful. I'm looking forward to it. So... That about wraps it up for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to find us on SoundCloud and find us on iTunes. If you like the show, tell a friend, leave a review, help us out. Uh, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Deserves that